Thank you all very much. It's lovely to be here at this wonderfully welcoming book festival and how lucky it is to have Patrick uh, running it because uh, authors feel very happy here. I can tell already after 24 hours, uh, despite the Scottish weather, which is, seems to have <laughs> followed me here. Uh, so it's absolutely lovely to be here. Having uh, been told that you woke up with me, I hope I don't send you back to sleep. But um, I'm talking fundamentally about a book that uh, came out last year and now in paperback, Paris Spring, uh, which is, as uh, Patrick said, a spy thriller. Uh, but we'll have questions as we go through the hour. And uh, do feel free to, I mean, don't talk about Jeremy Hunt. I mean, I, uh, <laughs> let's just, we'll take that one as red, shall we? But anyway, I mean, you can, you can stray off the, the central subject if you wish. Um, I think I've just dealt with that. I always begin by saying that just in case, to make sure I can get it out properly. But anyway, um, now look, uh, the, th the thing about my life as a journalist, which goes back a very long way, is, well, Peter Spence and others can testify, uh, decades, really, on, on newspapers and then on the BBC, where I still work, obviously, uh, including 21 years and today. And the thing that I've always done and always really wanted to do, which is why I went into newspapers at the first place is to tell stories because that's what you do. Now, working for the BBC, they're all true stories. Um, <laughs> at least they're, they're true when we tell them. Sometimes, subsequently, things turn out to be different. But, uh, you know, the great old defense of the journalist was always, it was true when I wrote it. Um, but seriously, uh, journalism, the telling of stories, the putting together of facts, the weaving of a tale, the setting of a story in a particular place is fundamental to even straightforward factual journalism, and particularly descriptive journalism. If you're working on the radio without the benefit of a camera, uh, one of the things you've got to do, particularly if you're at a spectacular event or a distant event, an exotic event, I don't know, a Donald Trump rally or something, it doesn't get much more exotic than that, I can tell you. <laughs> what you want to do is to explain, describe what it was like to be there. That's your job. What does it feel? Obviously, you've got to tell them what happened and who said what. But above all, you're trying to give a sense of being there. And the joy of a journalist, I think, uh, most kinds of journalists that I've known through my life, is to have a ringside seat at an event, even if it's not the world's most important event, but an event that has character, excitement, mystery, surprise. That's what causes us to thrive. And therefore, to me, the only surprise uh, that I find in not having uh, written a novel, well, in, in writing novels, this is the second one, and the first one's also available in the tent. Um, uh, but there's a question about whether you read them chronologically or not, I'll come back to that. The only surprise for me is that I didn't do it earlier, because it's an absolutely natural extension of, you know, what I do for my daily life. And there is no uh, contradiction to me in writing fiction, in making it up, which is an absolute joy, as opposed to really worrying whether, you know, is this right, is this fair, have we got everyone in, have we managed to sort of tell the story in an acceptable way that, you know, uh, is, is defensible. So the liberation of writing a story where you can invent people and you can end up deciding what they do and you're not answerable for what they do. I mean, you're answerable for pulling the threads together at the end, but, which is sometimes quite tricky, but you're not responsible for how they behave. And so it's been an absolute joy. And the interesting thing about this book, to me, is the way I was drawn to it was that 1968, when I was still at school, uh, you know, in, in my mid-teens, uh, was an extraordinary moment. And the 
character at the centre of this book who's called Will Fleming, who was born in 1930, so he's 38, 30, uh, well, he's actually 37. He was born on Guy Fawkes Night, 1930. He is a Scot who comes from a family in Perthshire that's pretty well off because they've got a little estate and he has two brothers. One is still at home. He teaches history at Edinburgh University. The other is slightly mysterious, like Fleming himself, because Fleming went into um, MI6, the Secret Service, here and, and serves as, you know, as best he can. And his brother, mysteriously, partly because their mother, who was an American artist, had rather strange connections in the States, ended up working for a mysterious branch of American intelligence, which he's never really described because it's better that way. And um, so these two brothers have gone into the secret world. And of course, what they represent in a funny way is that curious paradox that sometimes the greatest difficulties in the secret world aren't with your enemy, but with your ally. Um, and I remember talking to somebody who was quite senior in that world, and I was trying to plot the first novel, which is set, curiously, I don't want to confuse you too much, almost, well, not 10 years, about eight years later than this. Fleming is in the mid-70s, and for some reason, we don't know this yet, partly because I haven't thought of it yet, and I've got to do it before I finish the third book, uh, which will be coming out next year. <clears throat> um, so invite me back, Patrick. The, uh, he has gone into politics, and it, I remember having a plot difficulty, and I met a person who'd been very high up in these strange secret circles. And I said to him, um, yeah, I've got a problem here. And I said, look, I, I really need a, a plot line at this point. And I said, look, tell me what really is it like? And he said, well, because I think what a really interesting plot line is. And he then went on to outline the problem when two allied countries, i.e., in most cases ourselves and the United States, are working together in a particularly sensitive area, let's say Berlin in the Cold War. And of course, there's a great deal of sharing of intelligence and information. But there are, and indeed, they're joined at the hip in that sense. And, you know, GCHQ is paid for by the American taxpayer, if only they knew. And uh, so there's a great deal going on. And yet there are moments when one side or the other will have a particular interest which has to be private and has to be kept from the other ally for, you know, all sorts of reasons, the protection of some ultra-sensitive source that they want to keep for themselves or some information which is damaging to the other ally or whatever it is. And those moments of collision between allies in sensitive places turns out to be one of the most exciting uh, aspects of this whole game. And it was quite funny. I thought, that's rather interesting. So I kind of incorporated this in the book and it became a kind of theme, a sort of uh, running theme through the book just under the surface and occasionally breaking through on the surface. Anyway, after I'd finished the book and sent it to the publisher, although it hadn't been copy edited and it hadn't been you know, far less published, I ran into this character in the street just by chance in London. So, oh, how are you sort of thing? And we, you know, had a conversation. And I said, I don't know if you remember, but we had this really rather happy conversation in, well, it was either Oxford or Cambridge, and I won't tell you which, uh, and um, it always is. And um, <laughs> I said, it was very enlightening. He said, thank you very much. And I, uh, I said, you were very kind, and you gave me a plot line. And I said, as a matter of fact, you know, I've used it because um, I have actually written a book. And he looked at me sort of owlishly, which they all do, and said, yes, I know. <laughs> now, the thing is, that's what they always say to make you think they know more than they do. And of course, when you're trying to write about a shadowy world, 
it's rather useful to be able to say, well, I don't really know what goes on, because I don't, apart from what any sort of reasonably well-read person and knows a few people and so on can, can say. But you can make it up. Now, you don't want to do ridiculous things. Uh, but what I discovered was, of course, for all the excitement and everything of a plot, and you know, dead bodies and secrets and all the rest of it, in the end, what you're writing about is a character who has the same conflicts of loyalty uh, and uh, loyalty to family, loyalty to government, loyalty to colleagues, and a sense of duty to his calling, which sometimes collide and which sometimes are disturbed by the sense that there is a practical victory that he can achieve on the street against the other side. And so you're constantly living in a world where you have these dilemmas and where you're aware of the fantastic power of having a secret which you enjoy because you are the only one who has it. And that is the thrill of the game. I remember meeting somebody in a distant embassy or high commission uh, connected with a BBC trip. And we were given a sort of briefing by this person and it was all slightly... Um, you know, polite in the sense that it wasn't said that he was the head of the MI6 station at the place, but we clearly knew that he was, and that's why he was talking to us. And we had this sort of conversation about what his office was particularly interested in, and it was a rather sensitive part of the world. Anyway, he invited myself and a producer to dinner the next night, there were a few people sitting around, and we, we had a conversation, and um, it became quite clear that, you know, he knew that we knew what he did and so on. So there was no embarrassment, and that nothing would go beyond the four walls. Anyway, the conversation over the kind of second brandy after dinner was, and I said, well, he said, what do you think we, we're most interested in in this particular capital? And I said, well, you know, X, Y, Z, rather obvious, people coming from here and that, and you'd be watching for people doing this. Oh, yes, yes, he said, there's all that. And he leaned across the table and sort of banged his glass down and said, mind you, always keep a weather eye open for a passing Russian who might look hungry. <laughs> and, I thought, and that is what they're like. But the reason I wanted to set a story in Paris in 1968 was that I remember with great sort of vivid excitement uh, the events that brought Paris into a state of revolution in May 1968. And if you think back on it, and this is why I think it's so poignant today, everyone talks about a world in chaos. Who am I to disagree? I mean, everywhere you look, there's trouble, there's leadership that seems missing. Sometimes a leadership that you wish wasn't there, but that's another matter. <laughs> but you look back to 1968, I mean, just consider the two great powers of the day, Soviet Union and the United States, were both embroiled in absolute uh, political crisis. The United States had half a million men under arms in Southeast Asia in a war which eventually turned out that it couldn't win. It was a national trauma. In six days at the end of March, when the book is set, the end of March 1968, Lyndon Johnson, the president, announced that he would not continue to run in the presidential election, which was then going on for a second term, because Gene McCarthy, who was running as a kind of peace candidate, had almost beaten him in the New Hampshire primary. So Johnson was effectively removed from office. Four days later, Martin Luther King was shot dead in Tennessee. Uh, six weeks later, Bobby Kennedy was shot dead as, as a candidate for the Democratic nomination in Los Angeles at the beginning of June. I mean, these were traumatic moments 
in the story of the United States. Meanwhile, in the Soviet Union, Prague, Dubček was running a reforming government in Prague, and the Soviet Union was, in its own mind anyway, trembling on the edge of, of chaos. What's going to happen to the Eastern Bloc? It ended, of course, with an invasion by half a million Warsaw Pact troops in the middle of August to pacify Czechoslovakia and cool the whole thing down. But there were food riots in Warsaw, there were food riots in Budapest. So both of the modern empires were in deep trouble. And in the midst of it, because a bunch of students in Paris said it was ridiculous that girls couldn't sleep overnight in men's dormitories at the Nanterre campus of the University of Paris, suddenly that was the tinder or the match that lit the tinder and Paris went up in flames. And for three weeks on the left bank, the place was in chaos. Uh, the riot police were there. De Gaulle at one point went to Baden-Baden and they all thought he was going to give up office. He came back, he had a referendum, won it, clamped the whole thing down, but they couldn't turn the page back and it was the beginning of a new era. And just as the Vietnam trauma was the beginning of a new era in the United States. So that period of chaos is fascinating to go back and think what's going on. And the real point about this book in many ways is that when Will Fleming is the kind of number two, uh, number three MI6 man in the Paris station in the embassy in 1968, when he's approached in the street and an old-fashioned spy game across East and West begins, the real point of it is not saying, this is the one where we're going to beat the Russians. This is not the point at all. The point is, we've got to keep things calm. We've got to keep the balance in place. We've got to hold the line. We've got to persuade the Russians that, you know, we're not interested in a first strike because they think we are. We don't think they're capable of doing the other way. But mistakes are always possible. And actually, on both sides, the real interest is making sure that nothing disturbs the balance. And that's the fascinating thing. And one of the points about this book is that you realize that people like Fleming and his boss, Freddie Craven, who's a wonderful man, a kind of old spy master who's on his last posting, what they're really trying to do is to convince the Russians uh, through the East Germans of various things. And they realize that the only way you can give them information that they will be